Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. In today's special episode of the New Statesman podcast, we've got Wes Streeting in conversation with our medical editor and a working GP, Phil Whitaker. We recorded this episode in Phil's GP surgery in Somerset, so apologies for some dips in audio quality during the conversation. How have you been struck by the experience this morning? Well, firstly, it's, it's been great shadowing you and meeting other people who work here at your practice and getting a warts and all view, really, which is what I wanted. I mean, not literally, by the way, for the benefit of the listeners who have not been watching examinations, but... I think what you've got here at, at this practice is it's fairly remarkable in the sense that it's a much smaller practice. You've got a, I guess, small but perfectly formed is how I describe it. Because what I was seeing this morning is almost how GP ought to work for everyone. But for, for lots of reasons, the vast majority of them beyond the control of GPs themselves, what I saw today I think isn't necessarily common, let alone universal. So phones start ringing at eight o'clock and people who are ringing up are able to get a call back from you or one of your colleagues within an hour or two and then signposted appropriately to, you know, for some people it was go to the minor injuries unit up the road. For others it was better come in today and take a look at you and for others it was how urgent do you feel this is would you mind if we saw you next week and there was that flexibility and also personal care and I think that's what I think has been really nice to see here because I feel very strongly about continuity of care where people can see the same family doctor if they've got either conditions that are ongoing where you don't want to have to explain yourself over and over again or as I saw this morning with some of your patients, Phil, people where the investigation's ongoing and you're still trying to suss out what's going on. And, and I think you've got that here. And then picking up on one of the conversations we, we were having a short while ago, you're part of a primary care network that's delivering primary care at scale across the community. So if small practice like this can also benefit from having a wider range of roles coming in, the pharmacist, for example, coming in and helping to manage repeat prescriptions and taking the pressure off you as a GP, enabling you to do more of the things that only you can do. So it's been brilliant, really eye-opening. I've just got to kind of bear in mind, I think, and think about some of my next visits on the primary care trail of just keeping in mind this is not necessarily representative of how general practice is across the country, but I think it's a lot closer to what general practice should be for all patients, which is why it's been really quite uplifting and inspiring, actually. Yeah, good. I mean, I would agree. I think probably at this point in our NHS history, this is the minority experience. But there are, you know, lots of very good practices around, but there are lots that are really struggling and, yeah. and struggling to provide the care. Yeah, it's interesting. Probably one of the things that works really well here that I'd, I'd kind of I'd love you to take away is I, I'd crunch the numbers so in terms of our sort of whole time equivalent sort of GP numbers we look after about 1600 patients per GP and when I started in general practice back in the sort of mid 1990s the list size was about 1800 so we we're actually a little bit better than that there's a lot changed in that time lots of multiple morbidity lots yeah. of people with lots of problems so I think that's the right direction of travel and if there's any number I'd love you to walk away from here today, it's 1,600. I was going to say, because there'll be some of your 
GP colleagues who might be listening to this conversation from across yeah. the country who will be spitting out their tea at this point going 1600 yes. god I'd I love dream that of 1600. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> and that's part of the challenge isn't it it's always a, a political minefield for me because on one hand we know that patients are not happy with access issues around general practice and I've got to give voice to that partly in fact, most importantly, not just so that patients know they've been heard by me, but to reassure them that we know that that is a real challenge and want to do something about it without making poor old GPs feeling like I'm beating them up. And often I find whenever I put out some data showing the access challenges, the, the GPs who pick up the paper feel a bit beaten up. And my argument isn't that you know, we've got a whole load of GPs who don't like seeing their patients and are making it difficult. Quite the opposite. It's... We don't have enough GPs. And on that topic of, um, sort of GPs feeling a little bit beaten up by some of the things you said, can you, for the sake of our listeners, explain a bit about your plans for what you do with the GP contract and kind of reflecting on some of the, the response, some of it backlash that you've had? Yeah, well, we're thinking really carefully about this. We want to get this right because our analysis of what's fundamentally wrong with the NHS and why we don't get the quality and consistency of outcomes that other countries in the OECD do is that we're at the top of the table for spending in hospitals almost but when it comes to primary care community services mental health social care capital diagnostics we're either at the bottom near the bottom or even seriously lagging behind and I think one of the reasons why patients are often frustrated is because the bit of the NHS they do tend to interact with the most, which is GP, the front door to the NHS is broken. GPs are overwhelmed. There aren't enough of them. They're struggling to get access. And that's bad for patients because it means not just a frustrating experience. It can mean delayed diagnosis. It's worse for the patient, but it's also more expensive for the taxpayer. I mean, one of the patients I listened in with Phil talking to this morning if she hadn't spoken to Phil, I'm in no doubt, because she's been there before, she would end up in A&E. Now, talking to Phil, that's cost the NHS about 40 quid for that appointment. If she'd gone to A&E, it would have been £360. So I want to see a bigger role for primary care, a bigger role for GPs, certainly more GPs. I'm absolutely convinced of the case that there are not enough GPs and we have an under-doctored primary care. And that's why we've committed to the biggest expansion of the NHS in history. But we're thinking about in practical terms and, you know, what else might we need to do to fix the front door to the NHS now? I'm convinced part of that is continuity of care. And we want to provide a greater incentive for continuity of care within the GP contract because I've been slightly frustrated with the fact that GPs tell me they really value that. Patients tell me they really value that. But I'm not sure the contract values that enough. So that's on us to fix. That's not the fault of GPs. That's something that we, we can help fix. Where I think I have definitely hit a nerve is around the future of the GP partnership model. Yeah. And that came about because we're really just looking at the numbers. The The number of partnerships and partners is going down. Um, within the next few years, salaried GPs, i.e. those that are directly employed rather than running their own partnerships, their own businesses, will be the majority. And my anxiety is that at the moment, the kind of attitude just seems from the government seems to just be, never mind, we're not really bothered about doing anything about that and questioning whether that's right or wrong or what the implications might be. I've seen examples from colleagues where partnerships have folded and no one has come to take them over which leads to thousands of patients finding themselves without a GP and then neighboring GPs having to pick up the, the pieces so we're I mean we're genuinely open-minded about it we really are about the future of the partnership model I think we will probably end up with a mixed economy in primary care I think there's a lot of value and sense in what partners tell me about the extra hours they put in as partners and about the way in which running their own partnerships creates a degree of creativity and entrepreneurialism in how they think about services. But I, I think what I've got to do is plan for a future where, for all sorts of reasons, lots of people coming into general practice don't want that responsibility. So I think we've got to have different courses for different horses. And we're still thinking through what that looks like. Okay, so it's not that they'd all be absorbed into the no, that was never the plan. I mean, there was a, a point where 
I mean, certainly the Conservatives misinterpreted, I think, willfully what I was saying and suggest that I wanted to nationalise all GP part. That was never the plan. What all I said was, you know, as partnerships fold, I think Labour would be inclined to say, well, that's the end of that. And let's think about the new model that comes in. But, uh, you know, it was never the plan to nationalise because, you know, I mean, A, it would be very expensive and B, I'm not sure it would really make much difference. And also, I think the outcome of, of that would just be losing existing partners would say well, thank you very much for your offer of working directly for you in the nhs but thank you and good night i'm off to do something else so um that would not be sensible but we are open-minded about what the model of general practice and primary care looks like and we're still you know one of the reasons for being out and about and talking to people and spending time in surgeries talking to primary care network leaders talking to gp federations is to see what's working and to try and think about how we do more of what works yeah. there's a couple of just thoughts or comments to make really um in the earlier part of my career practices never folded and when a partner retired or decided to go there would be a queue of people taking over and then back in the sort of very early 2000s so pre-2004 contract we sort of hit a recruitment crisis so i was a partner in a practice in oxford at the time and one of the senior partners retired and we advertised and we couldn't get anybody so nobody wanted to be a gp partner in 2000 2001 and everybody said, oh, you know, must be the end of the partnership model. The 2004 contract is a very, very double-edged sword and created lots of problems that we might talk about later. But one thing it did do is improve the terms and conditions and the landscape in primary care. And within very few years, lots of doctors who'd opted for salaried practices were falling over themselves to get into partnerships. So the letters pages of Pulse, which is the GP's tabloid yep. weekly, uh, was full of letters from salary GP saying, oh, he's been partners, they won't give us opportunities to come in, we want to do it. So I challenge slightly the idea that the partnership model is not attractive. It isn't at the moment. And one of the reasons it's not at the moment is because it's not been supported since 2015. Mm. So 2015, Conservative Manifesto, 5,000 extra GPs, nothing materialised. Population's growing. Mm. Over 65s are growing. There's a proportion of the population with the greatest health demands. Numbers of hospital colleagues going up and up because the hospitals are dealing with all the stuff that there's no capacity in general practice to deal with. So you get this sort of perfect kind of storm of shrinking capacity in primary care, everything getting sucked into secondary care, and it's getting busier and people are getting stressed and they're reducing their hours or they're retiring early thinking, I've had enough of this. And then you get partnerships naturally reaching a point where people are retiring, but they can't replace them again. Yeah. And what was not happening at all from the government was any support to the partnership model. So there was no core funding coming through. Those promises to recruit extra GPs weren't happening. And when practices were folding, people were doing exactly that, shrugging, going, well, it must be the end of the partnership model. And young doctors are essentially very sensible. And they're looking at this going, do you know what? If the government don't actually believe in this, why on earth would I go into that kind of commitment? Back in 2019, Nigel Watson was commissioned to do a review into the partnership model. And he pretty much came out saying, this is a really good thing for the NHS. It needs to be supported. COVID hits. Jeremy Hunt, in the meantime, then chair of the select committee, is looking into the future general practice, comes out with a report, which I'm sure you've read. I know he's read it. I know he's in government, but he doesn't seem to be taking much notice of what Do you know, it's, 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 I, I don't know what's happened to Jeremy Hunt, the excellent chair of the health select committee, mm, yeah. but Jeremy Hunt, the chancellor, behaves like he's never met him. Yeah. And it's fascinating on, on that on the workforce generally. I mean, Jeremy Hunt actually praised Labour's plans to double the number of medical school places and deliver the biggest expansion of NHS staff in history and said that, you know, smart governments make the best ideas of their opponents. And now he is literally the Chancellor, literally able to, if he's not going to upset his next-door neighbours by abolishing the non-DOM tax status, he can choose a whole number of other ways in which to fund it. Still not doing it, and it's, it's absolutely crazy. My message to Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, is listen to Jeremy Hunt, the chair of the Health Select Committee, because he said some sensible things, yeah. unlike Jeremy Hunt, the Health Secretary. Yes, well, quite. <laughs> yes. I, mean, I've, I mean, I've had two Health Secretaries in my time as Shadow Health Secretary called Steve Barclay, but they are at least the same person and consistent <laughs> from one to the other. I don't, I've, I've seen three different versions of Jeremy Hunt. And, uh, yeah, but I think it, absolutely, I agree with all of that. But essentially what the message that I'm trying to sort of get across is that when the partnership model is manifestly not supported, people do not go into it. Yeah. And when it is manifestly a job that it becomes more and more difficult to do and sustain a, a, a life, people don't go into it. But it, it can be resuscitated. 
And there's actually, I, I, don't, I don't have figures, but I promise you there is lots of GP capacity in the country at the moment um, that is not doing general practice because they voted with their feet, uh, either left or reduced hours in order to survive. And whilst everybody says, oh, Labour, brilliant, going to double the number of doctors training, that's brilliant. And everybody says, yeah, but that's going to take 10 years. The capacity issues in general practice can be addressed much, much more quickly than that. Because what I saw happen in the early 2000s was that if you can do something a little radical to change the landscape, you will get people who have reduced their hours to survive thinking, this is now a job that I'm enjoying. Yeah, I'll do a bit more of that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's about the sort of three R's of workforce, you know, recruitment, retention and return. Mm -hmm. And I think we don't give enough airtime to, well, firstly, we, we don't give an, enough airtime as the opposition to retention, which is something I, you know, sometimes get some challenge from as the shadow health secretary. It's a very simple reason for that. You know, we're not, we're not in government today. And, you know, the, the retention challenge, I hope will look different uh, after the next general election. I fear it will look remarkably similar. But I don't want people to think that the retention point isn't lost on me. In fact, I would argue that had Labour not banged the drum so hard around doctors' pensions, we wouldn't have seen any movement on it. And that was a good example of, you know, we listened to the profession, work with the BMA Pensions Committee, and went in hard. I mean, I didn't expect the government to blow the doors off and do pensions for everyone. But hey, you know, at least the doctors' was, issue was solved. It was a real problem, which we, which we raised. But on the ret returners, I think you're right, Phil. I think there are a whole bunch of people out there who've either reduced their hours or have left the NHS earlier than they would have done. And I think just on a really emotional level, have left the NHS and their career that they thought would last them a lifetime, feeling really sad about how it ended. And I think if we get this right, we can inspire some of those people to come back, particularly to help us train the next generation and to lend their skills, experience and expertise. And in doing so, as well as helping to fix the problems that drove them out in the first place, it will actually give those people a really rewarding end to their career in the NHS so that they end up looking back on their career with pride from the moment they had joined to the moment they left. Whereas at the moment, I think there's a whole bunch of people who've left the NHS feeling really sad, actually, about how it ended and fearful about its future. And I hope, you know, I think it's part of our responsibility as party in opposition that wants to be in government after the next election to give people that light at the end of the tunnel and a sense of hope and belief that things can be better. Because I really think they are. For all of my anxiety about the state of the NHS today, it's going to be hard. I think it will be one of the hardest jobs in government. But I really think that this is not only salvageable, but we can build an NHS that's fit for the future. And there is a bright future for the National Health Service. You know, traditional values, publicly funded, public service free at the point of use, but delivered in a modern setting as... John Prescott might have said if he was sat in my chair today. <laughs> um, and when you say inspire them back, what would Lenda do to inspire them back? Would you incentivise them back? Or would you hope that this sort of warmer atmosphere around the health service would make people think again? Well, I think we need to think carefully about kind of practical incentives, not least because I hope now this is a very common refrain. All of our policies will be fully costed <laughs> and fully funded and we're not going to make promises we can't keep or afford. But I actually think it's... I think even if we said to people, frankly, come back to the conditions you were working in before and we'll just give you more money, I still don't think that would work. I think people will be willing to come back if they feel they're walking into a system where there is a plan for the future that they can believe in and where they can be part of building the NHS that, that they believed in when they first signed up, you know, doing a really good job for patients. Because, you know, that's the thing that I think the government has certainly missed around the industrial action course it's about paying conditions but a huge part of it probably the straw that broke the camel's back and saw nurses strike for the first time ever was moral injury it was the fact that they were slogging their guts out doing their very best and knowing their best isn't good enough and going home at the end of the shift desperately worried about whether they'd made some bad mistakes or feeling depressed because they know that someone that they saw in pain and discomfort really wasn't receiving the care that they deserved and through no fault of their own. And that's hard. So I think there really, really is something to be said for people feeling that they're working in an improving system and where they, they, they've got some confidence that the people at the top have got a plan 
and and the right direction they can believe in and at the moment objectively that's just not the case mm. and i would just make the point as well that it, it isn't just about people at the later end of their career so yeah some pretty shocking statistics um so doctors under 30 who've, who've trained in general practice so they've done 10 years medical school postgraduate training um and i think last year fully a fifth of them left general practice so these are the next generation and they are voting with their feet at the moment. And what a waste of public money that we've invested in their training, their money, because they're making a big financial contribution to the cost, but also their time and, you know, a valuable formative stage in their career. Um, you know, and lots of them, because, because they're, you know, by virtue of having got into medical school and been through it, they're clever people as doctors regularly remind me and they are um and they are highly employable and so it's not just that they're going off to work in australia or canada or ireland um they're going off just up the road um often from where they work to work for pwc and kpmg and mckinsey and you know they're, they're, these are highly employable people and they can earn a lot of money doing something else and you know, I think the problem the, the problem the government's got and has created is that in the past those people would have been kept on the basis of goodwill, and the government spent all the goodwill, and that's the NH and the that's NHS. Gone overdrawn. I think, yeah, I think, yeah, they've gone overdrawn, and actually, we, you know, it's not yeah, governments run up run up the the, the debt and the deficit, not just in the economy, but in the, in, the, in in NHS goodwill too, and. Um, I think, you know, for the, the NHS has been running on goodwill for too long and I think people now just want to know that there is a plan and that they can believe in and work towards and that things will get better, over, you know, in the foreseeable future. And I think that change can only come with the Labour government for lots of reasons. Just kind of coming back to um, where we were a little while ago, um, talking about what happens here so we've got a we've got a what i would argue is a you know a, a, a sustainable patient list size so that makes a huge difference um but there's a kind of a death spiral that general practice gets into um and it goes something like this which is that nhs england and the government are sort of saying we want instant access that's our priority so practices are push towards that at the expense of continuity care and many practices a patient just can't get continuity they have to phone on the day they don't know if the doctor they last spoke to is going to be in or if they're going to go onto their list or somebody else's and for an awful lot of problems um, not even necessarily really complicated ones but a lot of problems it might take one doctor two or three appointments to sort it out but if every time you go back to a different doctor you start racking up more and more consultations because the threads are lost and people take a, a yeah. different view. So something that could be dealt with in a sh small number of appointments, maybe one, maybe two or three, can end up consuming lots more appointments. So yeah. you start getting efficiency loss because the workload's going up. Um, and so it's very, very heartening to hear that continuity is such a sort of it's on the agenda for Labour. Yeah, very much so. If, we, if, you, if you were to form a government. Um, I think I just would want to make a, a point so that when people talk about continuity, it's very obvious that there are certain patients who want that and they think this is what we need and that's great and we, we want to offer that to them. But there's a kind of tendency to sort of think that's really the only people that continuity is important for. And actually that's not what the evidence about continuity says at all. So there's a a kind of seductive idea. It was it was in the Fuller report, Clef, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Um, this idea, and I've seen a little bit of it in the Labour briefings on health policy. Um, this idea that there's two bits of general practice. There's the complicated, multi-morbid, often elderly patients who need and want the continuity and will benefit from it, and then there's lots of everybody else who get urgent problems and they just want a quick sort of diagnosis and you can somehow separate general practice into these two streams and that continuity doesn't matter, continuity doesn't matter to this, um, what we might call a Q sort of on the day population. And it's wrong. 
thinking, if you don't mind me saying so. I know, I, I was about to say, I'm feeling gently told off, carry on. <laughs> and the, yeah, the, the reasons for that, they, they're complicated, but I'll try and sort of boil them down to kind of three things. Number one, all these people with lots of complex health conditions going on, what happens to them is they get acutely unwell yeah. and they need an opinion on the day. And if you separate it off your services, they just get any, any other doctor who doesn't know from Adam. Whereas if general practice is one unit, then the reception staff and the team have got a chance of getting them back to the person who knows them really well, who can often deal with their acute exacerbation or deterioration very efficiently and much more holistically um, than if they went off to somebody they didn't know. So those people that you think continuity is the only important thing for, they go into the acute illness sector very, very frequently. Another thing as well is that um, continuity is, I kind of call it the dark magic of of healthcare, basically. So um, we were talking earlier about our immunisation rates. Um, And we practice in a relatively deprived area and you were asking about do we have trouble with vaccine hesitancy and we don't we we have fantastic uptake of vaccination in the practice um and actually if you look at where vaccine hesitancy and and poor uptake is most prevalent it's in deprived communities and it's just one little example but where patients know and are known by their clinicians um, they develop a relationship with trust. Now, that might be because they brought their kid with constipation and then it might be they were suffering some anxiety another time and it might be that they needed some time off work because they had a bereavement. And each of those encounters doesn't look like something that continuity was important for. Anybody could do that. But if they're seeing the same doctor or the same clinician sort of quite frequently and they've been treated well and they've had a good experience then when they're feeling worried about oh, should my baby have vaccinations or should I go for that screening test or um, you know, what about this medication, should I take it? When that clinician sort of says, yeah, you know, I think this is good and this is why and let's talk about that, they've got a kind of bank of trust. Yeah, yeah. And if it's just somebody that they don't know, they don't have that bank of trust and what they're getting is the unadulterated sort of stuff from the internet, you know, about what a bad idea vaccination might be or something. Yeah. So continuity, so vaccination is one thing, but it's, it's across the board. Um, you know, if I speak to a patient who smokes and I've known them for 10 years and we've had lots of encounters and they trust me and they think I'm a reasonably good bloke. And I just happen to sort of say to them, have you ever thought about giving up smoking? And we just have a little conversation like that they are much more likely to take seriously that and go and think about it and maybe act on it. Whereas if it's somebody they don't know, they're just, ah, oh, it's having a go at me again. Uh, bloody doctors. So um, <laughs> continuity matters hugely, but in all sorts of ways that it's not really obvious. And it's, it's like a dark magic. And if you look at the evidence for it, it's not about just a small subset of the population benefiting from it. It's actually yeah. everybody from trivial minor childhood illnesses through to hardcore cancer, heart disease. And it's, you can't separate it out. After the break, we'll have more from West Streeting and Phil Whitaker. If you are subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. It's available for both iPhone and Android. Just search New Statesman on the app or Google Play Store. We'll be right back. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
when I've talked about continuity of care um, in the context of um, access, I, I'm thinking more from a kind of patient perspective in that given my general health at this moment in time, at least, Touchwood, what I would prioritise generally in thinking about more recent interactions with my GP is the fastest and most convenient access that ideally would be over the phone so I don't have to take a morning or an afternoon off work and I'm not bothered about whether I speak to my GP who I do have a relationship with or whether it's any of the other GPs or indeed any one of the multidisciplinary team that's based in my local practice. I would feel differently indeed when I was going through kidney cancer, did feel differently about the people I was speaking to, my clinical nurse specialist and surgeon at the hospital and my general practitioner and actually the practice nurse who I was dealing with before, during and after. So those relationships meant more to me at that time. And so I I think carefully about how I talk about it so we don't muddy the waters here because I absolutely accept everything you said about the general importance of continuity which is why we would look to incentivise it in the GP contract and not just for a particular section of patients, but to think about this in the, in, in the broadest sense of the reasons you say. It's more about the kind of the access issues and thinking about what patients value and why patient choice really matters. But I think um, what you've seen here is that actually they're not either or. They can be yeah, and if you... The other thing I'd say is, yes, you're right, in this practice... If every practice like was like this one, I would absolutely agree with you. And if the NHS looked like this practice in terms of primary care and the way you're able to manage the demand, not to say it's easy, by the way, but I think what I'm thinking about is where the NHS is today and the complete mismatch between supply of appointments and demand for those appointments. There's a complete mismatch, despite more, I think more than a million more appointments now than there were before the pandemic so it's not for want of trying on the part of gps but there is that still that that mismatch and so we've got to think about how we make sure that we've got real choice for patients and the right level of care so that crucially we're not shortchanging those people for whom continuity at this particular moment in their kind of lives and health are not shortchanged at the expense of sort of people like me for whom that wouldn't be so important right now yeah no I, I get that point and i think that probably my plea is that we don't build this structure that splits primary care into chronic disease and acute yeah no, that's a fair challenge i think we need to think about and we are thinking deeply about what primary care provision looks like i think there are also areas in which we can free up some GP capacity by creating some more front doors into the NHS. I mean, if you take our commitment to deliver community health hubs in every community and mental health support in every secondary school, I think that could actually have a transformational impact both on people who need to access those services and that support but also reducing the pressure on GPs, because I suspect, correct me if I'm wrong, lots of your colleagues get a lot of mental health cases come through the door where if that pressure valve was released and they were able to go somewhere else would be good for them. Also free up capacity with GPs for other patients who need your help. I also think that would it speaks very much to what Labour's saying around early intervention and early diagnosis. My frustration with mental health services in particular is that like most other conditions, early diagnosis and early access to treatment or support, better value for taxpayers, certainly, most importantly, better outcomes for patients. And yet in mental health, we say, I'm really sorry, you can't access this service yet, you're not well enough. Can you imagine if we did this in cancer and said, I'm ever so sorry, you're only at stage one. Please come back when you're at stage four, because we really like a challenge. <laughs> it's just not how, it would be, it's crazy. And that's what's happening. So I think we're thinking about how do we create more front doors that are still recognising, by the way, the centrality of the GP and ironically given the title of general practitioner, the specialist role that GPs play in managing the health of their patients and 
overseeing their care because I think particularly when you look at secondary care and if you are one of those patients with multiple comorbidities and you've got a whole range of things going on with your heart your back your hip that it can be quite frustrating finding your way around all those services in the hospital and I know there are lots of I'm doing some work with some of the health charities who have patients in this space who deeply frustrated at having to navigate their way around secondary care great thing about GPs is for those patients they're they can be the linchpin mm. and the, the person who helps them to navigate their way around the system. And so we don't want to lose any of that. But I think we can create more front doors into the NHS through primary care, which would give patients faster access to support, but would also free up the workload of GPs to do the things that only GPs can do, or indeed the things that GPs do best. Yeah. I think you described yourself as a care coordinator. Yeah, thank you for reminding me. But yes, it, it, it's sometimes really amusing reading political initiatives so in the labour briefing about health you're talking about creating a new role as the kind of care coordinator and for people with lots of problems going on and that's what we one of the things one of the many things we do so we're here already doing it and I think this is one of the other things that yeah I think if I took a sort of overarching view and said why did the Conservative Party not deliver on 5,000 more GPs in 2015 why did they not deliver on 6,000 more in 2019? I think actually it's because there is, number one, a lack of understanding of what GPs do in the Department of Health and the top of NHS England, if you're listening, and a belief that actually the role of the GP can be atomised and done by lots of different people. So whilst you've been seeing today some brilliant things that have been achieved through the PCN and getting additional roles like our pharmacists into the practice, there's been a lack of focus on investing in core general practice and all the kind of investments have been going into these additional roles and they are really helpful but they aren't actually replacing our role and I would again make a plea not to invent further fragments of the GB like a care coordinator this is one of the things we do as a core thing and if we can get capacity back in primary care we can do that for our patients again that's helpful concepts because I sometimes feel in in reaction to some of the things I've said that GPs all, have almost felt that like I want to I want to do away with GPs full stop and don't think the role is important whereas actually in terms of what we've committed to in policy and as I've said our policies are always fully costed fully funded so in order to meet that bar of what candidates for the manifesto and that to get approval at this stage it must be very important and we do see it's very important recruiting more gps because we think those roles are really important and we recognize there aren't enough of them and we've committed to doubling the number of medical school places which of course wouldn't just be gps but a large proportion of them would be and i take what you say we the, the role of the gp is important and i think more of them is part of the answer to the future of the NHS and how we build an NHS that's fit for the future and when we talk about other roles or other front doors into the NHS it's not to devalue the GP or to supplant it it is to reduce some of the pressure and I think navigate our way through the crisis the care coordinator role is an interesting challenge I think that Part of what I have in mind is that, and I don't think this has to be done by the GP, is for some people, especially people with lots of lots going on in their lives and with their conditions, finding your way around the NHS and, the, and frankly sometimes the bureaucracy you have to battle against as a patient can be really hard. And I'm not sure the GP has to do that bit. And I feel like poor old GPs have become the customer service department of the NHS in some ways. And I saw a little bit of that today with one of your one of your patients who called up who's waiting to be seen for her particular condition and needs to be seen in secondary care, but she's coming back to you. Now, in that case, there's something you could do to help her with pain management. But I often see people going to see their GPs, or whether GP directly or complained by the receptionist, basically to say, can you write a letter to the local hospital to chase up my appointment? And so, that, you know, that as if the practice doesn't have enough to do without 
asking secondary care why it's not doing its job. So I think there's some of that where, I think in common with some of the other roles that have cropped up, how do we make sure that GPs are able have the time and capacity to do the things that only they can do and they can do best? And a lot of that is about, I think, other roles that do not require the degree of expertise yeah. in medical training that you guys go through. Yeah, that's fair. fair point. We've talked a lot about general practice for mm, reasons because yeah. this is where we are, but obviously <laughs> part of what you're saying is for taking pressure off GPs, you need some reforms in secondary care and also social care as well. So can you tell us a bit about Labour's plans in both those areas for our listeners who might not be up to speed with all of the different commitments that you've made? Yes, actually, we have had, I think, a big emphasis on primary care, Mm -hmm. partly because we do see that as the way to reduce the pressure on secondary care. And obviously, we've just this week got yet another set of statistics out showing that waiting lists have again risen to their highest level, almost at seven and a half million now. And they have gone up about half a million since Rishi Sunak became prime minister, even though cutting waiting lists is notionally one of his five pledges and priorities and the more time I've spent in secondary care recognise that part of the reason why hospitals are really struggling is because primary care is broken more people are rocking up to hospitals and that's part of the pressure we see in A&E but similarly to get the throughput of patients you also need to speed up things at the exit door from the hospital which is about social care And again, I think this is why to all those people who say it's only more money that's needed, not reform. Government puts £7 billion into social care. And the most depressing thing of all is it didn't make a dent really on the number of delayed discharges. And there's got to be an element of really understanding what's going wrong in social care. And again, relates to the NHS, there's a big workforce crisis there. Care providers are struggling to recruit and retain the staff they need. One in three care workers leave social care to go and work in the NHS because it's better paid terms and conditions, albeit for the benefit of members of the BMA who are out on strike and the RCN who aren't particularly happy with, and indeed the other unions, well, over the moon about their pay settlement. I'm not pretending things are rosy, but they're certainly better than social care. Depressingly, meet care workers who've gone off to work at the likes of Amazon, who last time I checked are not famous for their pay terms and conditions. (laughs) So what does it say about the state of the system? That's what people are leaving a great public service, an important public service in social care to go and work in Amazon or retail or the NHS. So we've committed to making sure we've got fair pay agreements so we improve the pay of people in social care we also want to make sure we've got real career progression we're looking carefully at how we do that too and i think we're consulting with families on what we do for family carers as well because we're actually family carers do an awful lot to keep people out of the nhs and out of the direct financial costs of social care by providing a lot of care and support But we are growing demand in the NHS because we are driving family carers to ill health because they don't get the respite, short breaks and support that they need. So we're looking carefully at what we can do there. But all of these areas are interlinked and we're thinking about them very much in the context of the system as a whole, not just individual bits. Mm. And and then as as for secondary care itself, I support the move to greater devolution and I think integrated care boards can play a really important role in terms of integration of services and better coordination between primary and secondary care secondary and social care and primary care and social care we also want to see more support delivered out in the community which is why people look at our workforce commitment for example biggest expansion of nhs staff in history and people will say that's not reform that's outputs and that's money that's going into it But there's a reform element to it. We're not just talking about doctors, nurses and midwives, important though they are, and in the plan they certainly are. It's district nurses, doubling the number of district nurses qualifying. It's 5,000 more health visitors because we we see care in people's homes as being a really important part of what the future of the NHS looks like. And then finally on, on reform, there's 
I think this we're sitting on top of this revolution in life sciences and technology and Britain can and should be at the forefront of it and we should be the place the number I think it's perfectly achievable for this country to position itself as the number one place for people who want to trial new treatments and technologies to conduct their trials knowing that if they do that here will make it both easy to do and also to a high regulatory standard because so that Britain's standards are respected around the world and if you can prove your treatment or technology here then it's a gold standard that will help you market to other countries in the world but crucially we should be saying come and develop your new treatments and technologies here because you've got a really big customer waiting for you in the NHS we'll expect a good price from you for our patients and our taxpayers but you get the best of all worlds. You get groundbreaking science being conducted in this country with all of the jobs that go with it. You get patients in this country getting access to the latest treatments and technologies faster. The patient gets, sorry, the taxpayer gets very good value for money because we're able to use the bulk purchasing power of the NHS to purchase at scale. And We'll be creating loads of jobs in the supply chain as well, which is why you see health and life sciences feature so prominently in Johnny Reynolds' industrial strategy. So I think Labour's got Labour's got the building blocks for a serious plan to build an NHS fit for the future. And part of the argument I've been making is that a bit like the sort of the saying only Nixon could go to China. I think only Labour can reform the National Health Service. The, the Tories then touch it. Because every time they start talking about reform, they open their mouths and tell the country what they think. For the Tories, reform is charging people to see a GP. And as Sajid Javid, had, was it Sajid who floated to go and see a Tim GP? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Rishi Sunak saying, oh, but if you don't turn up for your GP appointment, you should be fine. So more charging there. I think that the more you hear the Conservatives say what they think NHS reform should look like, you, they realise how politically toxic it is and they stop talking about it. But the NHS does need to change. And part of my argument to the system is, and has been, if our answer is only more money, not only are we going to fail because there isn't a great deal of it going around, but even if the money were there, and even if the NHS weren't in the biggest crisis in its history, which I think objectively it is, we would still need to change the way we do things because our outcomes aren't good enough relative to other countries. And also we're sitting on top of this revolution in life science and technology. We've got a growing aging population with all the challenges that brings. So the NHS must always be publicly funded, public service free at the point of use. That for me is an unassailable, non-negotiable principle. But the NHS has got to look a little less like the NHS of 1948 and a lot more like the NHS we're going to need in 2048 or indeed 2088. Yeah, yeah. I think there's all sorts of thoughts bubbling away in my mind. But probably the one I want to just come back to slightly there is, yes, technology. Life sciences, brilliant. And I mean, they're genuine. The things that we can do for patients in this day and age are superb. But if we think about preventing disease, yeah. effectively, there's two kind of models. They're not, not one or the other, but there are two different models. One of which is to say preventing disease is a te- technological thing. So we need to do blood tests and we need to prescribe medications and we need to do stuff that coincidentally generates profits for industry. <laughs> and the other is to say, actually, maybe Michael Marmot has had a point that kind of conditions in completely live, absolutely right are driving a lot of your health and my perspective is that certainly since 2010 we've had a virtually exclusive concentration on technology and i don't mean technology as in bits of electrical kit but stuff drugs tests and really no focus on socioeconomic determinants of health so i very encouraged by the emphasis I'm seeing in the Labour Yeah, in terms of that that, that dichotomy you present, I know which side I'm on, Michael Marmot's, we've got to attack the social determinants of ill health, the poverty and inequality in our country, I think that's really central to 
the mission-driven approach that Keir's taking across the board. And you'll, I'm really proud of the big focus on health inequalities that's at the heart of Labour's mission on health. I think that will complement very nicely with what Bridget's saying and going to be saying with Keir in the coming weeks around educational opportunities and life chances. It also ties directly into what Rachel said at the very start of this process of outlining the missions around economic growth, because I think people saw the headline in lights. We want to achieve the highest sustained growth in the G7. But there was also a very strong emphasis on making sure that growth was equally shared and distributed across the country. And there was a closing inequalities dimension to it. And all of these things are linked. And if I want to be the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, not the Secretary of State for the NHS, Mm -hmm. and it will be part of my job with the mission behind me and the direction from Keir to corral the shadow cabinet, hopefully the cabinet after the election, to pull the levers that they can to improve people's life chances and health outcomes. For example... Bridget Phillipson's primary school breakfast clubs. Brilliant childcare offer. Really great for health if, if the breakfast is nutritious and we're doing the sort of thing Magic Breakfast provides through their breakfast clubs and not Kit Kat cereals. But really, we're really good for education as well. Children starting the day with hungry minds, not hungry bellies. You know, I've been talking to Lucy Powell, who's our shadow culture secretary, about the role of sport and physical activity but also music drama culture for people's mental health and physical health and and well-being too i could talk at length about the role that literally every government department can play and this is not just a mission for government it's also about what employers can do it's about what industry can bring to the table it's what civil society can do you think about the brilliant despite 13 years of really difficult financial backdrop for charities we've got brilliant voluntary sector in this country that are contributing enormously in this space think about some of your social prescribing partners in the pcn so i think this is i think it's a really exciting agenda and this is a good week in some ways for us to have the discussion as well because obviously big announcement from government this week i must say having the health secretary on the radio tell so there's this new obesity drug this is as good as it gets for this government i mean that i think in under the last labor, under, under the last labor i mean under the last labor government that would have been a written ministerial statement at best and page 14 nib of the guardian but for this government it's like wow someone else has done something we'd like to take some credit for it quick get the health secretary on the stay program i hope no one asks about waiting list and but actually you look at it and you think okay look uh, these obesity drugs can make a really fast, potentially life-changing and life-saving impact. Brilliant. But if our answer to obesity is simply pharmaceutical, we're going to fail. Partly because these drugs, the moment you come off them, you chuck all the weight back on. And partly because we can't keep on prescribing our way out of some of these problems, which are preventable illness that's about the responsibility that we take as individuals and also the conditions that we create as a society mm. and how we enable people to to live healthy lives or indeed hinder people's ability to live healthy lives. And so I think we've got to be really hard-headed and clear-sighted that the answer to depression and anxiety cannot be simply prescribing people antidepressants. The answer to obesity cannot simply be prescribing people an injection it's got to be about our diets our exercise our incomes and well-being at work our housing and you know that that's why i think of the sort of the mission driven approach that Keir set out as there are some people who are a bit cynical about it and particularly in the media i'm sure not the new statesman but there are some people a bit cynical about it saying what's this all really about and this isn't a pledge card is it no it's not a pledge card the pledge card will come it's not a manifesto is it no the manifesto will come but actually it is about how we plan to do government. And I think it speaks a lot to actually the Keir, the politician actually, who I think one of his great strengths is that he's come from outside politics actually. And he's run a big public service. He's a big public service reformer. That's how he sees himself. That's his record as director of public prosecutions. And if you ask him, he's pretty cynical about politicians who give big lofty speeches about their visions for the future. And when you ask them, how do you get there? They get really vague. 
So what Keir is about is I've got these five big challenges that I think are central to not just the challenges the country faces today, but how we build a fairer, better, more secure, more equal, more prosperous Britain. But in order to do that, I've got to have a serious plan that involves cross-government work in partnership with business, in partnership with civil society. And this, this these are the building blocks to having that serious mission-driven approach that means in 10 years he looks back on his time as prime minister going i'm really proud of the lasting legacy i've left this country rather than looking back thinking gosh i'm going to be able to write some memoirs about these interesting events that took place but actually when i really scratch my head and think about it what did i achieve which is where the tories are every single one of them and there's been plenty of them cameron may truss johnson sunak when they reflect back on their time as Prime Minister, obviously it doesn't take Liz Truss as long as the others, but when they reflect back on their time as Prime Minister, what will they honestly say changed fundamentally for the better about Britain? Um, I don't know what the answer to that question is. I could give you a whole shopping list for Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, whether on public services or civil rights and cultural attitudes, Britain's standing in the world. I, I, can't, I honestly can't think of any, because even with David Cameron and what he did on equal marriage... Well, I was, as a gay person, thinking, fantastic. A Tory prime minister has done this. We've, we've removed LGBT rights from being an issue you have to fear a change of government on. How naive was I, given where the culture wars are today? I think that, and I would say this as a shadow health secretary, of all the missions that we've set out, I've, I, this is the one I'm personally most excited about and proud of because I think it speaks to so many deeper issues about how you build a fairer, more equal, healthier, happier society mm. and, all, and doing all the things that make life worth living. On the Nixon going to China and Labour reforming the health service point, um, what role does private provision have in that? I know a lot of our readers will be thinking that and perhaps be fearing it. Holly used the word. Yeah, oh, and I've got to say this drives me bananas because if I had a pound for every time someone accused me of wanting to privatise the NHS, I could fund the NHS personally. <laughs> and I was saying, like, we'll privatise the NHS over my dead body, but it doesn't matter how many times I say this. I think we've just got to be pragmatic about this. The system is under enormous pressure. There is spare capacity in the private sector to get the backlog down. We should be using it on the NHS. At the moment, we've got this two-tier system where those who can pay to go private and those who can't afford it are left behind. Yeah, this is exactly the point. So we've got currently the NHS is being privatised and the private sector is capacity is being used, but it's being used by people who have got the resources to do that. And I've sat in the health service for quite a long time and I can remember during Blair Brown years when they were I mean they were the best the health service has been and that, that's reflected in the public satisfaction surveys and I had patients coming and telling me that medical insurance companies were offering new products that would only kick in if the NHS didn't meet its excellent time things so they were inventing new products because they were losing market share and I would yeah Yardsticks for success of the Labour government. Two years ago, there were no private GPs in Bath. There's five. Yeah, and and I, I mean, I don't want to make the NHS so good that people never yeah. feel they have to go private. And that was Blair's absolute wisdom, is that if you have really good public services, then everybody, apart from maybe Lord somebody or other, will use that service, because why yeah. would you pay? And then you've got everybody, even the people with the lowest resources, getting quality health care and Blair's insight was that if you run it down as we have been over the yeah. last 13 years the middle classes will take their health care elsewhere and that is what is happening in spades and the rump service that's going to be left mm. is going to be like a kind of Medicare in the States. And I think that is and that is the existential risk facing the NHS with another five years of Conservative yeah. government if they get back in whether through an accident neglect or design they have created a two-tier system that will deepen and i think that there are people in the conservative party who genuinely think that a desirable future for this country is to have an nhs for the poor and a private healthcare system for everyone else yeah. and again over my dead body i think the great wisdom of the 1945 government 
was to build a framework for a national health service that's public service free at the point of use that was about treating sickness at that time but in the 21st century is exactly the right framework for the world of artificial intelligence genomics life sciences and technology there are in the nhs model is one that could be enormously powerful for the future of healthcare in this country but it needs to be brought into the 21st century and that's something that only a labor government has both the desire and plan to do you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me anusha kellyan on monday our global affairs editor katie stallard will be talking to the historian vladislav zubok about what's happening in the kremlin after the attempted coup 